Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you, and I want to give the common disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. This does not constitute working with a mental health professional. Please seek one out in your area. And, you know, if there's not one in your immediate area, be open to looking at telehealth because there is somebody probably in your entire state that can solve that, can solve being able to provide you with services. So, so we have our... Uh, if you listen to a couple of our other episodes, you, we were talking with David Kalili, and he's back again. And this time, this is also for our Pride Month series of, uh, of recordings. And we're going to be talking about LGBT issues, and especially interracial LGBT issues, uh, and when it comes to relationships. So I'm going to give you the abbreviated reminder of David's background, if you haven't heard the other ones, but David Kalili is a licensed marriage and family therapist, board certified sexologist, focusing on working with men, couples, uh, couple therapy, and multi-ethnic individuals. He founded Rouse Relational Wellness in 2021 in order to address shame and anxiety that show up all, all too often in sex and relationships. He received his master's degree in counseling psychology from Golden Gate University and a master's degree in sexology or sexual uh, sexuality studies in San Jose from, wow, uh, San Francisco State University, where, my, where his work focused on Middle Eastern queer folks, kink and trauma. He also specializes in multi-health heritage couples, and those who immigrated recently are first-generation Americans. So welcome back, David. Thank you very much, Perry. It's great to be here. No problem. And this time, rather than screw up your name, I screw up your bio. <laughs> no worries. I, I wrote a long one. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. So in this case, as the standard question is, how did we get here standpoint, I'm kind of curious then, how did you get here in this relationship to this topic about dealing with uh, multi uh, LGBT relationships, especially when we're dealing with multi-ethnic relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so big things are, I mean, this is very much a very tied to my heart and to my lived experience. I'm a queer and uh, third culture kid or first generation American born um, very much have experience what it's like to be in liminal spaces throughout my life. I, my, my dad was from Iran uh, and my mom is from Austria. And many times in my life, I was told that I wasn't Persian enough. I wasn't American mm. enough. I wasn't Austrian enough. So I was like, mm. well, what am I? Mm. Um, I've also liked people of all genders. And so I've been told that I'm not gay enough. I'm not straight enough. I'm not queer enough. And so again, what am I? Um, and in my process through working to become a therapist, I started to really resonate with clients that understandably match that experience. And then matching couples or partnerships where either one partner had that experience or it was kind of alive in that dynamic where um, they held different areas of lived experiences and there was kind of like this liminal space in between them and they're trying to make a connection in that space. Hmm. Um, but they keep missing each other somehow, or at least missing in those moments. Um, and so, you know, we can take our personal work and make it work. And um, 
it's been really kind of a really lovely experience to see what it's like to work with couples around this, uh, both around um, issues around coming out, you know, maybe there's different areas of being in the coming out process for various reasons, or they're coming from very different cultures, not just different countries. And um, I like to delightfully call it a multicultural explosion that happens in the relationship. And so just to kind of um, create some space for that going to happen and we're going to work on it. You know, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a part of this young David that was working, you know, with his mom and dad as their multicultural explosion happened in mm-hmm. their partnership. And um, yeah, lots of fights around Persian time. Persian time is a very late time, especially compared to Austrian time. <laughs> well, I, it's, it's, it's that classic standpoint of POC time or yep. any person yeah. time. Very different than anything that came out of Europe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, where would you like to begin on this? This on this. Maybe we should start by giving some more definition of terms so that everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, what terms stand up to you is what should be good to start with. So, we want to make very clear that this applies to all lesbian, gay, bisexual, mm-hmm. trans, queer individuals in any form of relationship with somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, not just the aspect of multi-ethnic is we can also, another standpoint of culture can be religion. Yeah. Well, another standpoint of culture can be just where you grew up in relationship to, even if you're from the same country, where right. did you grow up in relationship there? Did someone grow up much more in a mountain cold environment versus Uh, be sure where it was bright sunny and warm yeah yeah so there can be those type of cultures and i know i like to also say when we're talking about culture every family is its own culture yeah absolutely and you know i've heard there's a reason why i um use multi-ethnic or multi-heritage and Mm -hmm. it's to give respect to uh the term of interracial because i've i've often heard interracial and i think of interracial very much as black and white especially Mm -hmm. in the states and Mm -hmm. then i consider other relationships multi-heritage or multicultural Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's incorrect or um causing more of a divide but it's felt like well let's be frank some of that is probably clearly based in the idea of a divide since most quickly when that term interracial came up those who created it were mainly thinking of black and white, not right. what does it mean for a white person to end up with a uh, Mexican or an Asian or so forth. I mean, consider um, the history of Lucy, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Right, yeah. Just the amount of flack that they got being a multi-ethnic cu- couple. Yeah, absolutely. In the time frame when they were born or they, when they were popular characters. Yeah. Yeah, and those are, um, I was just listening to a podcast about that and just the, the amount of uh, press and work that was done to kind of cover that up or to kind of whitewash it in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Even though it was also one of the major themes in their telling. Their telling <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. What other terms? I'm trying to think. Well, the other one I think maybe in some of the stuff what we're going to be talking about is also the idea of power dynamics. How yeah. do we understand what power dynamics are going on in the relationship? Because there's also not just the standpoint of what might be financial. There's also mm. even this aspect of dealing with immigration. Yeah. 
how many how many be how many relationships also have been for that lovely little subject of someone getting a green card yep both either out of true love or an arrangement yeah yeah i think that that is an incredible power dynamic you know and one thing that i often think think about working with couples or partnerships is that that power differential and you know who who either is has the upper hand or believes or is talking to their partner as if they have the upper hand and vice versa mm-hmm. and very much that uh, not just immigration status but also you know is like you're saying the green card holder or the, you know the marriage is uh, maintaining the green card and so even if it is a very loving couple that is still very much a power dynamic that is mm-hmm. is at play um and I've unfortunately witnessed it uh, both personally and professionally of it, you know, being used in manipulative ways. And doesn't just end there, even the aspect of intimate partner violence. Yeah. Uh, again, this sort of the binary notion that it's usually only male and female is like, no, intimate partner violence happens between same yes. gender loving couples. And especially within when we bring in the multi-ethnics aspect of it. How is interpersonal violence also either being sadly permitted, seen as normalized? Yeah. And that even goes not just from physical damage to emotional damage. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we at, at Rouse, we have a group that's forming uh, for survivors of intimate partner violence because we want to make sure that there's, there's um, safe enough spaces to process that and work through, um, mm. you know, the trauma of, of those experiences. But yeah, I mean, being able to reach out for help uh, during those abusive moments, if you you know are of a different immigration status, it's very complicated, and you have to trust on the system that you know it's going to work in your favor. Mm-hmm. Which also depends on the heritage you've had with the system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for folks, that would probably be some of the terms would will be bouncing back and forth with and going off in the different tangents on. Yeah. You know, and and going off of that piece, I think, you know, something that I've worked a lot around, um, especially within gay male partnerships, is that uh, racial or ethnic power dynamic that comes at play, especially around immigration status and um, um, kind of the, the white partner looking down at their other partner as, you know, either in this pitying way or this patronizing way or in a contemptuous way of like, well, mm-hmm. they don't know the language or they don't know the culture. And and it can range from very subtle to very um, explicit. And I very much, I mean, this is stating the obvious, but as, as a couple therapist, you know, I think it's important to really highlight those differences when they show up so you're not reifying the, the damages. But I'm in the Castro and we see quite a bit of, you know, um, a lot of eroticizing of Asian men in lots of ways. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I talked to um, gay Asian men who have this split feeling around it of, you know, there's a way where some of them will like the attention and some of them will, will hate it because it's like this double-edged sword. And mm. they're not, they, they know that they're not being, for, for some, you know, uh, they know that in some cases that the men that are looking at them are not looking at them as a person, but what they represent and, Mm-hmm. what they think you know they represent mm-hmm. and as a black man i'm very much aware of that same aspect too uh yeah. it's in that and there are those who really look at me and then there are those who love that idea and it's just like 
Mm. If you love the idea, don't be surprised when I'm walking away, not paying much attention. Exactly. Yep. Not, not unless you're asking me questions about me, who I am. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sadly, I, re- I remember a, an incident that happened a few years ago uh, with my leather club where this clearly drunk uh, white guy was hitting on one of my brothers and he had walked up to him and said, you know, I'm frightened of you, but I'm really attracted to you. And I, my, my leather brother, I could definitely see was a massively uncomfortable. Yeah. And it wasn't so much, wasn't so much, and he wasn't really, it wasn't he, in this drunk guy's mind. It was a flattering comment, yeah. but it wasn't landing. No. <laughs> and I think my, my brother said, well, then why are you here talking to me? <laughs> and it, that's about the point where I stepped up and was like, is everything all right over here? Yeah. And yeah. the guy basically is, I'm just trying to have a fun time. It's like, I, and I said to him, it's like, I just want to make sure everyone's fa- practicing consent here. Yeah. That's and a good line. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I really think it's, it's, um, it's an unfortunate reality of very much a scanning of, you know, what is your, what are your purposes here? Why are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is it the objectivization? Is it the, the fetishization? Or do you want to get to know me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And one of those other areas then too, with this power dynamic comes up the aspect as, as things have been happening lately in this country, because right now we're recording this in, Jan- in January and this is going to be hearing in June. Mm-hmm. Um, the aspect of what does it mean for the idea of someone who's immigrated and is LGBT, can they go home again? And there's yeah. a whole push to go home for some. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and you know, where my dad came from, uh, Iran, I actually have not been, but, you know, let's say I, I was born there. I couldn't go back to Iran. Iran wouldn't be home because of, of a queer Middle Eastern man or, you know, multi, multi-ethnic man um, with heritage in the Middle East. I would be declared a Persian citizen once I arrived, and then I would be upheld to those laws and regulations within Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because my father is, was a Persian citizen, I would be declared a Persian citizen. And then... Um, and right now it's not good there. Um, but I hope to go one day. I hope that, you know, what is happening in Iran, um, as unfortunate and as deadly as it is, I hope it doesn't stop because it feels like it's gaining traction and that there will be, you know, a revolution of some sort, hopefully. Um, and then there could be more openness and mm-hmm. more, you know, justice and love in Iran. Which then also, again, becomes a power dynamic that some partners can exploit. Yeah. I, I mean, if it feels appropriate, you know, there's there's a wonderful documentary about uh, trans folks in Iran called "Be Like Others" that we could talk about. It's, it's you know, specific to Iran, but it, yeah, it's a really beautiful but devastating documentary from the mid aughts. I want to say it was on HBO it was called "Be Like Others," and it was looking at um, transgender. Uh, actually gender affirming surgery that is occurring in Iran and it's actually government funded and it's been government funded since the early eighties. And if you look at it just quickly, you think, Oh, that's a really interesting kind of progressiveness that the country is having uh, to you know, have the government pay for gender affirming surgeries. And what they say is that um, 
in the actual laws, it says that when this happens, when a person is transgender, it is a uh, quote unquote, a mistake made by God. And the Islamic Republic is offering a path to correct that mistake, which is really fascinating because they're admitting that God is making a mistake, which A, that's not a mistake, but B, mm. they say that God makes mistakes. Um, and B, what it actually is, is it's not for people to actually have gender-affirming surgery, but it's to reduce the actual presence of queer folks. It's to straighten them out, essentially. And when you get to the end of the documentary, they interview some people and they say, if you didn't live in Iran, would you have this surgery? And the majority of them said no. And they were just doing it to stay uh, in their partnership or to stay living with their family. And so when I presented this documentary to colleagues and talked about this with people, a lot of the questions were understandable outrage, rightfully so. But it was met with this, why don't they just leave the country? Why don't they just they just go go anywhere? Why you know, yeah. kind of this exasperation, almost kind of a contempt towards the people that are staying there. And it's that's you make it sound so easy when you put it that way, but it, you're leaving the person that would be doing that would be leaving so, so, so much, especially coming from that culture, um, to turn us, turn away, uh, in that way. Like, yes, they would be going into, um, their own self and their own, um, lived experience and integration, but it's not that easy of a decision. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we're sitting with these clients who are holding the, the severity of this in a way where we don't, if you haven't lived it, you can't fully understand. You have to at least give them that opportunity to to have you believe it. I'm, I'm thinking about some supervision yeah. that I've been doing this last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. um, where um, I'm trying to think of how much I can share. Essentially, you know, sitting with a client where you have a different level of privilege and lived experience, and and realizing, wow, this is heavy, and mm-hmm. I have to really be serious about this. Um, and, you know, while there might be overlap with different cultures, you really do have to understand the severity of, um, some of these people's experiences that it is actual life and death and it is actual, um, connection or disconnection from family. So to mm-hmm. just say, step into your own, come out, be wonderful, be your amazing self. Mm-hmm. It, you're really, you're really showing your true colors to show that you don't understand the cultural significance of this decision. And then also the power privilege that comes in the aspect of, oh, yeah, I can just go anywhere else in the world. Right. And I will automatically be comfortable. Yeah. It right. sort of comes up with the welcomed. aspect. Yeah, we'll be yeah. welcome. We'll be comfortable, <laughs> which goes with the issue in some cases about the ex, let's just say the expat status, which is, yeah, you're right. going to go off and live in another country, but you're not giving up your U.S. citizenship. Yep. You're not yep. actually technically becoming part of that country or just right and how often does that become part of that mechanism that gets instability in the in the relationship right right becomes used or yeah becomes part of it exactly equally on that standpoint i know as we were talking before we before this episode how does this aspect of also respecting another the other partner's culture play out in either tearing the relationship apart or building greater bridges within the relationship. Yeah. So can you say something more about that? Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, like um, it was my, my father passed away 10 years ago and it was just his birthday. So he's very fresh on my mind, but 
um, you know, you, you're saying that and it's making me reflect on my parents' relationship where, you know, my dad was Muslim, my mom was Catholic, um, but my dad celebrated Christmas with my mom because she saw it as, you know, she really enjoyed it. And my mom celebrated Persian New Year with my dad because that is the best holiday that there ever was in my mind. Um, and, but they, you know, and I would, we would talk to each other and people would ask them, you know, why didn't my, they would ask my dad, why didn't you make her convert? That was the, the phrasing, make her convert. Uh, and my dad was, was always just like, she's not interested. I didn't make her. She, she makes her own decisions. I don't know, but it's not my, and I always appreciated his answer to that was always like, it's not my role to make her do anything. And it really helped me hold and understand the strength of these types of relationships that, yes, as we're talking about, there can be many difficulties and miscommunications, but there's a lot of beautiful foundational building that can be done um, if there is communication and if there is respect and love and mm -hmm. care where they can really build off of each other's, you know, because Austrian and Persian are very different, but mm -hmm. I feel like I've, you know, held some some good things there's still some catholic guilt in me that i'm trying to work on but uh yeah <laughs> uh but that you know but that become but for other forms of it such as what does it mean for someone to learn to cook their partner's favorite food yeah. in of their ethnic culture what does it actually mean that you're actually studying your partner's cultural history yeah you know how it influenced where they came from what are some yeah. of the choices their family made let alone learning their language, trying, even if you're always going to be a bit broken, to learn right. their language. Right. Yeah, and I, I, it's the way that you said that, even if it's a bit broken, it's about that process, it's about the journey, it's signaling what you're doing, it's not about the outcome of being, you know, perfect Persian mm -hmm. or German or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As being, and those are all many ways to show connection with your partner. Yeah. But then we also know how this also shows up in disconnection. So can we talk a bit more about that one-upmanship mm -hmm. from the standpoint of the stuff you've seen in working with, with couples? Yeah. You know, and then from the, the cultural immigration standpoint, it's very much the, you know, um, it can be really, it can even be kind of quiet and insidious like this like a laugh of like, well, Bob does just doesn't understand. And it's almost like a pat on the head and mm -hmm. that it can seem as um, considerate or loving and understanding or accepting maybe, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, it, it is very much a top down sort of, sort of view. And, you know, are you trying to force your partner to assimilate or are you trying to help them you know, kind of join them in their own journey of what they want to, um, you know, mm -hmm. acculturate to and, and integrate or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've, I've talked to partnerships where one partner barely speaks English. And I'm pretty sure that that was the same for my parents. But, you know, uh, on that alone, it's not bad. But it's, what do they see in that? Or is there a pattern in that? And so if you talk to people who they often date men, or they date other partners who uh, can't speak English as well, or they don't speak their language as well. There is something interesting about that difference or in that dynamic. Um, again, it's not a make or break, or you know, it's not a. It's only one piece of information. But um, you know, if you're living in a country that is English is the predominant language, and your partner doesn't, 
you're really making them rely on you for lots of things, especially if you're not trying to encourage expansion of communication in either direction. Mm -hmm. Which, sadly, uh, and having to go back to the uh, aspect of the partner violence in the classic classic horror stories, we hear about the mail-order brides. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, indentured servitude almost, right? Where they, they come to the country and then they take their passport away in mm-hmm. lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's happened to, to many family members of mine and in work situations mm-hmm. um, where they come to the States and then their employer is saying, great, I'll take this. Um, that happened more so in the 80s, uh, right. 70s and 80s, yeah. Uh, and some might say also happening with a certain bird app as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> that one. Right. But then that standpoint of what does it look like when that happens with a same-sex relationship? Mm-hmm. And then having to go through the multiple layers of uh, discrimination or stigma that may, may or is occurring at the various levels of um, the institutions that they have to interact with, with criminal institution, immigration institution, mm-hmm. um, you know, financial justice. Yeah, lots of things uh, where the, the person who has the, the citizenship or looks like a majority of the people in the country, they're going to have the, the power and privilege and the people in authority are going to believe them over the other partner. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So... You know, I think that's probably a bit good place for us to take a break and just let that all sink in. Yeah, yeah. To sink in there before we go on to our second half here. So, I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with David Zakil, licensed marriage and family therapist. And this is Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tethered. So, stay tuned for our second half. We'll be back shortly, folks. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, here with David Kalili, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And we're going to continue our talk about LGBT and multi-ethnic relationships. I know we kind of ended, ended on a kind of a heavier note at the end of our other section, uh, but we're, let's talk about a bit about, and sort of wrap some more of that up and move into some lighter stuff, what do you think also comes up with what's known as IFS, which is internal family systems uh, work when it comes to this place between not just dealing with our identities as 
from our ethnicities, but also our, our sexualities as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's making me think also about my um, my thesis in the sexuality studies where I talked about Middle Eastern queer folks and intersecting identity conflict. And the the idea behind intersecting identity conflict is that we all hold multiple identities, but for some folks, certain identities conflict with each other, like Middle Eastern and queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this belief or this view that we have of people as like one whole person rather than a, a sum of our parts. Mm-hmm. And by being able to talk about ourselves or about our interests, our desires, our emotions as parts of ourselves, this helps work through shame and anxiety in lots of ways because then we don't have to defend our whole being. We can make mistakes. It can be okay. We can have these parts of ourselves that we're not so thrilled about or parts of ourselves that we, we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and oftentimes what happens when um, couples therapy start or relationships therapy start is they may have waited uh, quite a while to come to therapy or there may have been this kind of uh, event that happened that brings them in and mm-hmm. they're coming in very activated and probably a bit defended mm-hmm. um, one or both partners. And they may be thinking, you know, Oh, shit, this therapist is going to tell me that I'm, I'm the wrong one or my partner thinks I'm the wrong one or everyone thinks I'm the wrong one or they're the wrong one. Mm-hmm. And in reality, we as therapists shouldn't be, aren't looking at who's the right one, wrong one, unless there's a significant uh, power differential or a significant abuse situation, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, majority of the times we're looking at parts of people. Um, and so we're, we're really wanting to cultivate a, a safe enough space where um, those parts can talk to each other, both within an individual and also between partners. Mm-hmm. And I find that that can be a really good way to, to also teach that type of communication to couples to, to take home with them. Uh, because mm-hmm. then it becomes not so much of an all or nothing argument or discussion and the stakes get a little bit lower or more um, appropriate or aligned, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that in some regards to as general is that anytime this situation is going on, it's not always about logic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in all reality, a lot of things aren't about logic. There are a lot more things about emotions. Yeah. And it's easy to get wrapped up in your emotions and forget that there is someone else who may or may not be connecting with their emotions and in relation to yours. Right. And then and it's in the defensiveness you're talking about. Yeah, I, I often talk to couples uh, and folks just about how we are we are tuning forks to other people, and you know the more emotionally closer you are to a person, the more your tuning fork is going to re- resonate from mm. them. Mm. And so to kind of also witness that you may just be reacting to to them, and may not be like you said, like a logical thought. It may just be a a, a stimulus, a response mm-hmm. to a stimulus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think there's, and that doesn't just stop with relationships, but also go uh, intimate part. Yeah, doesn't just stop with husband and husband or spouse and spouse. It also goes with the kids too. Mm. Yeah, it also goes. With, in some ways, it also goes to your work environment too. I mean, yes. really, how many of us willingly and openly do not feel like we need to defend ourselves when we're called stupid? Mm. And even if we're not, even if their intention is not to call us stupid, how have the wording's been used? 
Yeah. Is build a definition that's very different, maybe very different, especially when you bring in the language standpoint. Um, that isn't translating just because we both speak English. Right. You know, and I think there's, there's a way where, um, yeah, language can be used against someone in this way where they're not even aware that it's being used against them, especially if it's, uh, their foreign language. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, then, then that power and privilege is used in that way. Or even, even the other fact there too, is the standpoint is I know for an encounter I had completely, it was a different work related thing. And this woman was, uh, of Asian ancestry was upset that I wasn't understanding her. And she's saying, I speak, I'm speaking perfect English. And I'm sort of mentally looking, it's like, yeah, you're speaking perfect English. Problem isn't that it's the, what you're speaking. It's what you're enunciating. Uh, uh-huh. I'm having trouble understanding your enunciation. Right. Right. And how that enunciation can be used as one, a sign of someone being, <laughs> or it's the, becoming part of that mechanism that's saying, I don't understand you. Yeah. And then it becomes used against them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then there's, I mean, there's this entire imperialist notion of English as like the first language. I mean, just, you know, the whole uh, ESL industry, mm. know, the fact that it's called English as a second language is a really funny misnomer because the majority of the people that come to the States English is their fourth or fifth language that they've learned you know, mm-hmm. by the time they get here, but it becomes this is the thing that, yeah, English has to be the, the primary language of the entire world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which gets into the, that powered dynamic element we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the couples that we work with, majority of the time that's helping them really just kind of communicate to each other and actually listen to each other and not just wait for the next rebuttal or whatever to, to right. defend or protect their part. Yeah. As, as the saying goes, are you listening to reply or listening to understand? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And we need to be spending more time listening to understand, um, which just again, brings us back to the aspect of communication and as I was telling my story earlier about with my leather club and so forth. And I said, my biggest concern is making sure everyone here is following the sort of following that rule of consent. Yep. Consent requires communication. Yeah. Yeah. And with, with having that much practice with communication around consent and likes and dislikes and red, yellow, green lights, however, whatever your framing is, you people in the kink and queer and poly community have a lot of practice. And mm-hmm. it's not that they're better people, but they've just, they practice that skill more often and more regularly. And for a variety of reasons, they've worked through the stigma around talking about sex directly or talking mm-hmm. about feelings directly or needs directly. Um, especially men and men of color who have been told to not talk about needs, not talk about emotions, not talk about who they are or, mm-hmm. you know, other than just yeah, what they can conquer or what they can accomplish. Um, or the idea that they can, what they can be the trophy of. Yes. Right. To go to the, the, the objectification and fetishization. Are you mm-hmm. interested in this person because of who they are or what they're representing? You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the practice of communicating around consent and checking in and um, can really, really help with that, that communication level. And, 
you know, working with kinky and poly couples who have done a lot of work around that prior to coming into therapy, I often will know that they have that, that baseline of, you know, kind of um, verbiage or linguistics to, to work from, to talk about their attachment style or talk about their needs or that it's actually okay to state your need and that it doesn't come across as weak or, mm -hmm. um, or it doesn't, uh, because your partner can't read your mind, it doesn't mean that your relationship is less than, you know. You know, that, that I think is one of, the big, those, that one of the big issues is that for some reason, couples think that the other member of their party should be able to read their mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where does that come from? Right. Codependency? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> well, because, uh, I mean, there's a standpoint as kids, we eventually realize our parents can't read our minds, which is also, yeah. and when there's that sort of mind-blowing thing, especially when they realize you told a lie and you, you got away with it and your parents didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or that your parents didn't understand that you really, 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 really wanted the Power Ranger that was blue and yet they got you the yellow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the yellow one. I'm just going to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that standpoint. But that standpoint. Why is it in with couples that there's supposed to, that there's this sudden reignition of this idea that someone else is supposed to be able to read your mind? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that if they don't, then it's like, oh God, we're doomed. Where this this means some this means something significantly harmful or bad about our relationship. I think it also plays into this factor of, or this belief that you give your partner an orgasm. And I've seen this across gender lines and sexual mm -hmm. identities, um, but it definitely is shows up uh, in straight relationships for sure, where you, you give your partner an orgasm rather than your partner knowing what they like and don't like and how they can get themselves off and then guiding you that way, where you mm -hmm. collaborate together to create mean mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. If you can, ha but by having the open communication about sex and likes and dislikes, then it's there's no giving. It's working together. Yep. Which is which can again come back to the power dynamics standpoint. Right. Yeah. Yeah, my mind's going to like the different types of tops and service tops and all that, but that's going into the weeds a little bit. But we go in the weeds. We yeah. <laughs> But that standpoint of uh, not just much the idea of who's servicing who, but it's that standpoint of there has to be a established outcome to the sex, let alone uh -huh. established outcome to the roles that are played there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a young, young, early undergrad, David sitting at SF State, listening to Carol Queen, who you know was one of the beginning people of Good Vibrations, talk about... Mm -hmm. Um, just because a top meets the bottom doesn't mean that they're going to align immediately, or just because a sadist meets the masochist doesn't mean they're going to align immediately. There's so many beautiful variations within that spectrum. Mm. Um, and that's where communication comes into play is, you know, what type of top are you? What type of bottom are you? What are you into? What are you not into? Um, mm. Kink is a wild, wonderful umbrella and you get to discover what you enjoy and what your partners enjoy. But mm. you have to have that consent and communication to kind of lubricate the process, as it were. That end, then what do you find when, in your experience, what do you find with LGBT relationships when it comes to kink and the multi-ethnic standpoint? How is kink either blending, not blending? 
um, multiplying with these type of relationships. How is it multiplying? Like how? Because as we talked about earlier, the standpoint of, okay, for some, they can't go back to their, 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 where they've come from because of just the idea mm-hmm. of identifying kinks. So when, then what happens then too, when we are looking at, they're now here, they've got an entirely new sense of freedom and they're working on connecting themselves and they find uh-huh. kink. You know, I don't know. If, I mean, this is baby bias, but um, as someone who is in the kink community and loves the kink community, I, I do feel like there is a, a form of like actualization or integration that happens, you know, if, if they're able to enter into the kink community in a way where they feel respected and seen, um, that there is this agency that takes place of then they can say what they like, what they don't like, they can have that kind of communication. And then they're in this space where, um, you know, I think one of the things I like about kink is that it's a really, it, given the, you know, subculture within kink, it can be a really accepting and wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can be whoever you are. And so I, I think I've seen people who have immigrated then feel really welcomed and, and warm and in a kink community. Um, mm-hmm. again, as long as they're not fetishized or objectified. Mm-hmm. And there then becomes that aspect of how long before they can recognize the difference between mm-hmm. being actually accepted versus the objectification. Yeah. And to the folks who are objectifying, like really investigate why you're, what is it about that culture, that race, that, that background, that, that image that you are objectifying and what have you projected onto it that you feel like you're going to get that you're going to, is it the, the, the warm Japanese culture of, of togetherness that you saw in anime that you're trying to get from dating Asian men? Is it, what is it, you know, mm-hmm. really investigate that and don't just accept it as, um, uh, just like black men or just like Asian men mm-hmm. really there's work to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's not just, Oh, I like it. And therefore I, I mean, that's essentially no offense. What happens with a child? Uh-huh. You're now going to go to adult. Yes. You have your influence of your inner child, Yeah, but now you also can get the chance to give it language, substance and reality more than I just like the blue ranger. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Because ultimately, I like blue. Not because of any of the other colors of Power Rangers. So, right. Yeah. For a second, I was hoping that you were looking off at your collection of Power Rangers that you had over there. <laughs> no, I, I'm at the office today, so I don't have much of my collection here. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, let's be frank, the first round, the first when Power Rangers came to the US, the first queer ranger was the Blue Ranger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was a show that I watched every day after class. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so do I. It sort of felt it filled my when I was missing the Voltron vibes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm an 80s kid, so I grew up with uh Voltron and Robotech as some of the my first anime and so forth I started watching. So Yeah. Go back. <laughs> Perfect. All righty. So, David, if folks want to talk with you or get your services, where can they find you? Yeah, I um, run Rouse Relational Wellness in San Francisco, California. We serve folks in person in the Bay Area or online, as you were mentioning earlier, over tele in the state of California. Uh, we have a number of clinicians here who focus on various aspects of sex and relationship therapy, and we run groups around sex and relationship therapy. 
So you can check us out at rousetherapy.com or at rousetherapy on different social media channels. All right. So I'll have some of that information in the show notes. So I hope you folks have been enjoying your Pride Month. And I think this is probably going to be the episode that we kick off Pride Month with and go from there. So I want to wish you a a happy and safe Pride. And uh, we'll be back for more, folks. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.